Thank you so much for that. It's amazing as we go through the different seasons of life, how different songs take on special meaning for us, and praise the Lord for that. I was quite busy this past week staging a certain, helping to stage a certain event which took place in our family's life, and uh, Pastor Wesco was calling me, urging me, petitioning me repeatedly to give him a title for the sermon today, and I just couldn't come up with anything. And finally, I did come up with something, but I thought, you know, I don't think he'll go for that. I, I don't know if I can convince him of that title or not. So I put it on the table, and the hour was getting late, and he took it. But I noticed he had to put a subheading there before he could totally list it. Did Noah vote? Have you ever thought about that? I'm sure you haven't. <laughs> but I want to draw a parallel there as we conclude today. And as we look at these next covenants in the Bible, just as a matter of brief review, not a long review, I'd like to go through a, a couple of things to bring us all up to date. Uh, first of all, you remember our definition, just so we're all on the same page as far as definitions are concerned, know what a dispensation is that we've been talking about. It is a period of time following each of the major covenants of the Bible in which men were to live before God in accordance with what God had commanded in the covenants, the covenants that had gone previous to the particular time in which he lived. Sometimes stipulations of those covenants carried over. Sometimes they were changed. And uh, whatever the case, the mankind was given the responsibility to be a steward of those instructions of God for a period of time until the next covenant was given to him. And so really, technically, it's a stewardship. It is a responsibility that mankind has to be the householder, to uh, follow the Lord in taking care of that which he's committed to him. Defined by the previously given major covenants of the Bible by which men were able to live and were to live before God. Now, we talked about the major covenants of the Bible. Just real quickly, the first one is what? The Edenic Covenant, and the Edenic Covenant led to the dispensation of everybody, just everybody. The dispensation of innocence. And the next covenant was what? The Adamic Covenant, which led to the dispensation of conscience. And then came the, well, I went there too quick, Noahic Covenant, which was the human government. And the next is? Oh, you're getting kind of dim here. A little louder. Abrahamic. Abrahamic covenant. The dispensation of promise. Okay, the Mosaic covenant. The dispensation of law, right? And what comes next? Oh, you ought to all know this one. The church. The new covenant. The dispensation of the church. And then the one we're looking forward to in the future is what? The kingdom, new covenant in the Bible, the kingdom covenant, which is the dispensation of the kingdom. Okay? That's too obvious. And then, of course, we have the two minor ones that, that follow. And so, uh, as we have looked at these dispensations, we've been recognizing, and we're going to see this come together as we get to the end of this period of time, and we'll, we'll point out some things about it today, that together the dispensations demonstrate that only, only Christ's sacrifice and shed blood make possible 
the redemption of mankind. The last time we were together, we talked about the Edenic covenant, named for the Garden of Eden, which God, after he had created man, prepared to place the man and created there the woman, and uh, he gave them that special place on earth to occupy. And he gave them the Edenic covenant, which we call the dispensation of innocence, or we may call it also the dispensation of unconfirmed holiness as man faced a test that God gave him in the Edenic covenant. And then we talked about these different uh, aspects of the period of time, and we're going to compare these with each dispensation or period of time. Man's state at the beginning was one of unconfirmed holiness. Adam had been created, and he had fellowship with God. There was a certain sense in which he was holy, in that he walked in the garden with God, so it seems, by reading a little bit further in the text. But uh, his holiness had not been tested, and his responsibility was to till and care for the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he was not to eat of that one tree of all the trees in the garden, that one tree he was not to eat of, and of course, his failure was that he did eat of that tree. Such a simple test. And as we go further, we find the, the covenants become more complex and more complicated. But God began with a very simple test. And as a result of that, there came judgment. The Adamic covenant, which actually is a curse, uh, came into being in Adam's way. And we were talking about that last time as we gathered together. And, of course, the Adamic covenant is the dispensation of conscience. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to uh, Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this dispensation period, this dispensation of conscience, and look at some things in the text. This uh, frequently is a period of time that is just more or less overlooked, just kind of skimmed over as if it's not of any great importance. But in fact, if you look at the information in Scripture, you'll find that it extends for a period of about 1,656 years, I think. It's 1,656 years, yes. A period of 1,656 years. That is quite a long time for this period of time. And during this period of time, uh, many things happened and the earth grew immensely. Now remember, when man came out of the Garden of Eden in this period of time, uh, he didn't come out of the Garden of Eden period as a caveman. Contrary to the, the frame of thinking that our educational system and our political system and our social, all our systems in our country and our world really, uh, they try to portray for us the idea that man started as a low creature and evolved into a much more sophisticated creature. In fact, just the opposite is true. Man was a very accomplished, intelligent creature in the beginning. Adam and Eve were very intelligent people, very perfect in their physical persons and existence. Now, with the fall, there came the curse. And that gave a lot of limitations to who they were, but they were still far advanced. In fact, the, the people of that day were far more advanced in terms of their intellectual capacity than we are today. Because since that time, the gene pool has degenerated us to such a point that we are not uh, capable of the intellectual complexity of those early individuals I remember Dr. Wickham used to tease when he would come because his wife would always bring her poodle. 
and he said the poodle was absolutely the bottom of uh, development within the dog kingdom because it was a very compromised and deficient species, always needing help and repair and constant medical care. And uh, so that's an example of how things have developed in the, in the species. The gene pool has become continually polluted by variants that enter into it and have caused many difficulties that even our own congregation, our own community we see are there. But as man came into this dispensation of conscience, he was a very intelligent person. But nonetheless, sin encroached upon the race very quickly. Adam and Eve had two boys, Cain and Abel. And uh, they came and offered sacrifice to God. And Cain offered his fruits, which were the labor of his hands. And Abel offered a, a lamb, a, an animal, with the shed blood upon the altar. Now we would think, just by human reasoning, that either sacrifice might have been a very sacrificial and meaningful thing as they brought it to the Lord. But we find out when we read about Abel in Hebrews chapter 11, the New Testament clarifies, okay, that the offering of Abel was acceptable unto God in the sense that the offering of Cain was not. Well, why? Well, knowing that, we look back to the Old Testament, we find God had set a pattern for Cain and Abel there when he allowed Adam and Eve to continue on, and he killed that animal and skinned that animal and clothed them in the skins of an animal that had been killed. Now, remember, Adam and Eve knew nothing of death before that time. But they saw death, the death that they deserved, worked out before their very eyes as God took this animal and killed it and bled it and took the skins from this animal and clothed them. And that was an instructional lesson of what was required. Not an offering of thanksgiving, which the fruits and vegetables represented in essence, but an offer of a need of a sin offering to cover their sin before a holy God. And so Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain's was not. And of course, as we read the account, Cain did not accept God's judgment, but he chose, remember this is a dispensation of conscience, Satan said, you'll be as God's knowing good and evil. And Cain made up his mind that that was not an acceptable standard, that he would establish his own standard, that he'd have his own sacrifice the way he wanted it. Many people are like that today. They want their music the way they want it. They want their church service to feel the way they want it to feel and not necessarily represent what God wants it to represent and thereby make them feel how God wants them to feel. They want to come to church and feel good all the time. And we do come to church and feel good, don't we? We feel good a lot of the time. But there are times when we examine our lives before the Word of God that we feel very bad. We feel very convicted about our lives and our need for a Savior. And so uh, our, our activities are, need to be based on what God would have us to do. And in this dispensation of conscience, man was left to follow his own conscience. Now let me just say a word about that. Uh, what is the significance that man might be left to follow his own conscience? Well, there's two aspects to that. And if you look in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, if you'll turn there with me, you'll find that expressed in the text here as in Romans chapter 1, 
Paul works to uh, lay out what took place as man turned his mind and heart against God. And he says in chapter 2, verse 14, the following. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing, when they have done wrong and violated what they know in their conscience is right, or else excusing one another. What is that talking about? It's talking about a Gentile, someone who doesn't have the law, somebody who's not seen God's standards for holy, right behavior. And yet it says that these people have by nature a, a conscience which show the works of the law written in their hearts. What's that all about? Well, there is a universal code of righteousness uh, that comes with every individual. Every individual born into this earth, though he may find himself, and not may, does find himself born with a fallen nature and compulsive as a sinner, yet he has an innate sense within himself that some things just aren't right, that some things are wrong. To, uh, to mistreat another person, another individual, to, to mistreat them in a way that you would not want to be mistreated, inherently suggests the idea that that's a wrong way to treat somebody. The uh, illustration that some have used in writing on this topic is throwing uh, the old lady under the bus. You know, the old lady needs help across the street. Do you help her across the street or do you throw her under the bus? Well, any person thinking at all understands that to throw her under the bus is wrong. You wouldn't want to be treated that way in your weakness in elder age. And so there is a sense in which even those who have not known God, who have not seen the law of God, have within themselves a consciousness about what is right and what is wrong. Enough of a conscience that with the revelation of God from the heavens and the conscience they have by nature, they are condemned even without the law. And so they uh, need a Savior. But then it talks earlier here, if you go back... Uh, a couple of verses. It says, verse 12, For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. In other words, here is the, the individual who's never heard the law, and, and he has a certain conscience that condemns him. But the person who has been given revelation from God the law here specified, has even a greater, deeper, and increased responsibility before God because his conscience has been trained in righteousness by the law, by what God has revealed. So as we come to this part here in Genesis, turning in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 3, we have people who do not have a great deal of revelation but they do have a limited amount of revelation that they've gotten from their parents, Adam and Eve, enough so here that Cain is condemned by what he did because it was clear that it was wrong from what he knew. So these people moved into this period of time after the fall of man in which they sought to live by their conscience 
and you, you know how it worked out. First of all, Cain killed Abel. And uh, he felt no great sense of remorse, and he, he feared, though, that others would perhaps kill him for what he had done. So the Lord, in his grace, pardoned for the moment Cain and allowed him to live. And so he would not be killed for the deed that he had done. So we have a period of time here in which man was not held accountable for his wickedness. But he was allowed to go free and be his own God and make his own society, his own governments, do things the way he thought things ought to be done. And if you read across the page, uh, the society developed. Uh, Cain had children. They, Abel had, he was killed. Uh, but out of Cain came children. And, and then Eve had another male child, Seth. And it, it develops here uh, in verses 17 and following in chapter 4 of the book of Genesis. And, and it says that uh, Enoch became a builder of a city. And he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And it talks here about individuals who are developed in terms of their skills with metal and music down a little bit further in the text with farming. Uh, this was a society that grew up. It, it was quite a, a society, quite a world, uh, for as long of a period of time it was. There was a very large number of people, no doubt. I, I think I've heard quoted at different times as millions even, maybe even billions, of people in this period of time that would have been born, especially when the race hadn't been polluted as badly as it is today. And so there was a tremendous, with the intelligence of these people, the number of these people, there was a, a tremendous civilization pre-flood that we know nothing about in secular history because the flood destroyed that civilization totally and utterly. I, I, in my own thinking and in my experience in my life and different things I've read and studied, have pretty much come to the conclusion that nobody's ever going to dig up a city from the pre-flood era. They have been washed away totally. But yet, there may have been a very great civilization there. And you notice here, God reveals Lamech. What did Lamech do? Well, Lamech took the wickedness and carried it a step further. Lamech took unto himself two wives. He broke the pattern God had said. And then a little later on, we find out that Lamech actually had killed somebody and had felt himself worthy of death. But he sang, rather, what has been called Lamech's sword song. And that is found in verse 23. Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, bragging to his wives. Hearken unto my speech, for, and here's the song, I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. God's grace upon Cain was not perceived among the people as God's grace upon an individual, their conscience having told them that killing is wrong. But instead, they became bold. And they went out and performed the same kind of debauchery and, and threw it in God's face, threw it in the face of people around them. When man was left to himself, when throughout history, perhaps at the peak of his intelligence level, at a time when he had just his own parents 
had walked with God and, and had known God's way, and they, they increasingly turned against God. And they built a civilization that became very violent. In the midst of that civilization, there was a man born named Seth. In chapter 4, verse 26, it says, And to Seth, to whom also there was born a son, and he called his name Enoch, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Now that's kind of an enigmatic statement there. You mean nobody was calling upon the name of the Lord before Seth was born? Well, uh, Seth is the godly line. Every other before him was coming off of Cain because Abel had been killed. So the world was filled with wickedness. But Seth had taken God seriously and in his life had inspired, apparently, men as groups to turn to God and to look to God. But the reign of death continued. Chapter 5 is called the, the death deroge, the death chapter. So-and-so lived so long and begot sons and daughters, and after they begot sons and daughters, they lived so long, and he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. And Enoch lived 60 and 5 years, 521, and begot Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begot Methuselah 300 years and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and 5 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's a big enigma, isn't it? What happened there? In the midst of this wicked, wicked society, perhaps uh, among the most wicked that are ever be upon the earth, there were men who walked with God. It can be. It should be. Especially in our day and age when we have the revelation we have and the Christ that we have and the power of the Holy Spirit. This man walked for God. And and there seems to be a picture here of the church, actually, in that he was, uh, he was transformed and taken from the earth and, and taken out of the wicked earth and was taken to heaven to be with God. But things got bad, folks. Chapter 6. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wise of all which they chose. This is a passage that's been interpreted differently by different people, and it's not my intention to interpret it today. But just in summary, my understanding of what happened here is, it's my understanding that uh, demons who were present upon the earth in the midst of the society, who were in fact trying to destroy the race in order to, to negate the possibility of the prediction in Genesis 3.15. What was Genesis 3.15? The Proto-Evangelium. It was the promise of a seed that would be born to the woman. It was the promise of a seed that would take on Satan and would crush his head. But Satan and his demons wanted to destroy the race. And uh, there's some thought that it's what is talked about here when it says that... Uh, Noah was, was found uh, pure, his gen per, verse 9, perfect in his generations. He had not been polluted by this infiltration of angelic beings. Now, we're not talking here about angelic beings physically 
Mary, we're talking about angelic beings who indwell to men who then, they, they more or less, when, when I was, uh, when I was a, a few years younger and our family was traveling, we visited a church in Michigan, not too far north of here, and it was an unusual family there that invited us back to their home. He was a big game hunter. He had all over his home alligators, bears, all over his home. But his home was built in the middle of a compound that was fenced in that contained deer, reindeer. And his, uh, his work was to breed the reindeer in order to get large racks on them to be able to sell to farms in the south who then would have people come in and pay a price to hunt down these deers with these especially large racks. He, he was breeding them to create a deer with a large rack, and he was quite successful at doing it. Well, here we have Satan, who by indwelling men in the wickedness that was taking place, was selectively bringing people together to genetically destroy the race, just as he was bringing deer together to create large racks. And so Satan was trying to destroy the race. And God looked down upon this in verse 5, and he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every... This, this is the statement of this, of this dispensation. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You've heard me probably a dozen times in the last how many years, 17, 18 years I've been here, talk about this verse and how it just piles and piles and piles the extent and degree of the depravity and the losses of man. Not, not, not focusing on his deeds, but focusing upon his thoughts. But not just upon his thoughts, but upon his imagination in his thoughts. In his heart, the very center of his being. Only evil, continuously. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. And so he chose Noah, and there came that great flood upon the earth. Well, let's just look at our uh, different categories here on the Adamic covenant. Man's state, he's separated from God by the curse of the Adamic covenant. He has been shamed and thrown out of the garden. Man's responsibility to do right. To live by his conscience and to do what God had minimally required for them, which was to offer blood sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. Man's failure, he, it's right here in this verse we read, rather than thinking thoughts of God and having victory over sin that we talk about having through the Holy Spirit, they had victory in sin, or I should say disaster and loss in sin, thought only evil continually. God brought the judgment of the flood. There came a time here in this period of time when the violence was so great it was, it was anarchy. Every man for himself, no consideration of the other individual, as God had suggested by what he had done with Cain and, and Lamech then polluted 
and the judgment of the flood came, and we have the dispensation of conscience. Now, as we think of that, we want to make a few applications here about that. And the first is this. The extreme death to which man will go if he's left to himself. The sword saw him a lamech. He dared anybody to come against him in his wickedness. The imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only wicked, was only evil continually. In other words, there was not even a time when he had a good thought toward God or toward his fellow man. Continually, a mind occupied. It's, it's like a, a person we might relate to today who is addicted to drugs and is continually consumed with where he's going to get his next fix. And all the time, it's destroying him. That was the kind of attitude. Anarchy filled the earth. There was need for some type of a deterrent, some type of a restraint. There was an expression that was stated by a major religious group in the last century that's pretty well diminished to self-existence or to, to extinction now that all men are good if they are shown the light. You know, there's a lot of people who believe that today. All men are good if they're shown the light. But that's not true. Men are innate sinners. And as Jesus pointed out, and as the Bible points out in John chapter 3, when they saw the true light, which was Christ, they crucified him because their works were darkness. And so... Noah enters into the picture here in Genesis chapter 6. And uh, Noah is, becomes the head of the race, and he's given a covenant that is universal and unconditional. And this period of the Noahic covenant lasted 427 years. And if you turn to Genesis chapter 9, chapter 8 and chapter 9, you'll find that covenant. And, uh, you know, some scriptures are familiar to us, but I, I really felt that it's important in this particular study to actually read the words that were given to these people, the covenants themselves, so you can see here is the covenant, this is scripture. And so as we do that, we look at chapter 8. And God spake, verse 15, unto Noah, saying, Go forth from the ark, thou and thy wife, and thy sons, and thy sons' wives with thee. And then it goes on, and we come down to uh, verse 20. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, here's the commitment of the Lord, which is repeated to Noah later, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth seed time and harvest and cold and hot and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And then we come to the formal declaration of the covenant in chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Now as we go through this covenant... Rather than reading it through and then coming back, I'd like to just, as we read through, talk about the various stipulations 
of this covenant, which you'll find in your notes. The first stipulation being the repetition of the be fruitful and multiply. Where did we hear that before? In the Edenic covenant. He told man that when he first created him. And now it's repeated in the Noahic covenant. Not only is it repeated, but when you jump down to verse 7, it's repeated twice. And you be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. Nothing after that ever changed that. None of the rest of the covenants that we find in the Bible ever changed that command. We are to be fruitful and multiply. You know, men come up with all kinds of excuses about why they shouldn't have children, the cost of education in the world today, uh, the, the wickedness in the world today. Uh, God says, I, I, can, I can take care of all those things for you if you trust me. If you just trust me and follow me, I can take care of those things. But I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I don't want you to worry about overpopulating the world. I, he just promised him. He says, I'll, I'll take care of the world. But you fill it. You fill it. God loves life. He loves every life that comes into existence in this world from the moment of conception. He loves life. He knows that child when he's being formed in the inner womb. And he controls that process. I uh, read a short devotional article a couple months ago that talked about the, com the complexity of the conception process. And, of course, the male determines a lot of things, in particular sperm that fertilizes the uh, egg. And there are millions of different sperm, all with varying characteristics. But God controls which one fertilizes the egg to make you the individual. And you are very uniquely who you are by virtue of the fact of all the other things you could have been if it hadn't been controlled in the providence and hand of God. He loves life. He loves life. And he promises to provide for us in that. Now you notice verse 2. It says, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. This is an interesting statement, and when we look in retrospect, we have some insights, even as we look in retrospect in other things in the Bible, that we may not have noticed if we had not seen that statement. And, and, and what we notice is, if we turn back to chapter 5, it says in verse 28, And Lamech lived in 180 and two years, and begot a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work. And toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Noah means comfort. And so we find that in the flood, there came a relieving of the curse of the Adamic covenant or the Adamic curse. You know, when it says in the uh, Adamic curse that he bring forth thorns and thistles, that wasn't the little kind of things we see today. There's been a lot of debate and question about the canopy and, and uh, and that initially in the creationist movement was advocated as the way that God had created. And many still hold to it. There are some that have it a little different. Both, both, by the way, seeking the Lord, not trying to undermine Scripture, but just different viewpoints scientifically of how the things that are described in the Bible may have taken place. And uh, in the canopy idea, it was like a, a, a subtropic. You know, plants grow up in one night in the tropics. You can cut a plant down one night, it'll grow into a massive tree. And that's the picture we have of Adam working his garden. 
The plant's coming up. Just, it's a constant struggle, a constant fight. I mean, we think we fight weeds. Well, he, he really fought the weeds, and that's what Lamech was talking about when he was crying for relief. But as he worked so hard in that garden, he always had to have his eye over his shoulder. Because apparently, by virtue of what this is saying here, remember, in the Garden of Eden, a man was given dominion over all the animals. We don't know exactly what that all meant, but it may very well be that he had a great deal of control over them somehow uh, in their movement, what he, he named them. That's a picture in the scripture of having control over something. But with the fall came the loss of that control. And apparently, and I say apparently, but it seems very clear, when man fell, God put the desire of man. Animals, in fact, became carnivores, didn't they? They were herbivorous before, we're told in the Bible. But they became carnivorous. And there's a picture here when you put these things all together of this man working by the sweat of his brow to create this garden and get his food while over his shoulder there was a Tyrannosaurus rex or somebody like that, maybe multiple times his weight and height, who was ready to chew him up and spit him out. He had the animal kingdom against him. I've seen a couple of situations. I think at Grandma Walter's house one time, the kids were working there, had a lot of squirrels around. And usually, uh, if you saw a squirrel, he couldn't run the other way. But if you saw a squirrel, and he turned around and looked at you and uh, kind of called you out, you better be careful. There's something wrong with that squirrel, because squirrels don't act that way. They usually run. He may be a rabbit. Be careful. Don't fool around with a squirrel that acts aggressive like that. Well, that's the picture here. But with the flood there came an easing of that situation. Now, these changes that took place with the flood continue to this day. And it won't change again until the time of the kingdom. There were topographical changes in the flood. Mountains were moved up, so they find today fossils on the tops of mountains. How do you explain that? Fossils of marine creatures. Amazing. Well, we could talk a long time about that. Verse 3. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as a green herb that I have given you all things. So they were no longer herbivorous, but they could have animals for food. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. I've always said it'd be a great study to go through the Bible and study about the blood. There's something special about the blood. In the blood is the life of man. In the blood of Christ is salvation. And God throughout the Bible holds a special place for blood in order to keep us reminded, even in the New Testament, remember, at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, uh, when they were having the struggles over how they should conduct themselves in the church relative to the Jewish system before them, there was still the forbidding to eat blood because it was a reminder that the blood is the salvation that will be provided in Christ. Remember, he not only had to die for our sins, he had to shed blood for our sins. So the Bible declares there was a necessity of the shedding of blood. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lies, here's another change, will I require at the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. 
So we're not going to have any more times like Cain where he's excused and Lamech gets away with murder. Now God has established in the framework of the Noahic covenant a commission for men who will pursue that which is good and right to have control to exercise capital punishment, death, to those who do not respect other individuals who are made in the image of God. By the way, that image of God that we were created in the garden was marred, according to James, but it is still there intact. And this holds true today. We could do a study again of capital punishment and see how it follows through the scriptures. There would be no more universal flood. Verse 11. It says, And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And then God said, This is the token. What was the token? The rainbow. Hasn't that been terribly polluted in our day? Amazing. Massive society. It's been spoiled as a, as a symbol that we can use, actually. But God knows, and the Bible tells the truth about these matters. And so we have the order of nature in verse 22, uh, will not cease. Chapter 8, I think, verse 22. Let's look at some points of comparison here. This was the Noahic covenant, which is a dispensation of what? What? Human government, okay? And we have these characteristics. First of all, man's state. Eight saved souls. Genesis 7, 7 came off the ark. Man's responsibility to carry out the Noahic covenant that we've just read and talked through. Man's failure. Well, we're going to look at that in a little more detail in just a moment. We'll skip that for now. And then the judgment of the languages. And I want to look at that before we move on from this point. So take your Bibles now and look further. Chapter 9 is the Noahic covenant. Chapter 10 is the table of nations. And chapter 11 is the tower of Babel. Now, when you look at your Bible in the book of Genesis, you'll find that chapter 1 is kind of an overview of creation. And chapter 2 is a detailed look at some aspects of creation. It's not two myths that have been joined together to give the account of creation in the Bible. No, no. It's a general overview followed by specific details. Well, here we have the same sort of thing. We have two chapters reversed. Because in this chapter 10, it talks about how there will be nations. Look at verse 5. It says, But these were the isles of the Gentiles divided into their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families and their nations. So the table of nations in chapter 10 actually follows the events of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, okay? So don't be confused by that as you read through your Bible. So in view of that, let's turn to chapter 11 and look at that. Now, with every dispensation, there comes a degeneration and a judgment. In Eden, there was the covenant... And they're not to eat of the tree, and they ate of the tree. In dispensation of conscience, they were to do that was right according to their conscience, and they violated their conscience, and there came the flood. The flood was the judgment. In the dispensation of human government, human government failed to 
properly or totally restrain or redeem man in its failure, and it resulted in the Tower of Babel judgment. And so let's look at that for just a moment. Chapter 11. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone and slime, for they for mortar, had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city, and a tower whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Uh, now, what happened here? Number one, the people had failed to obey the promise or the, the, the statement of God, the command of God to multiply and fill the earth. They decided to multiply and build a city that would recognize their own reputation instead of multiplying and spreading out and subduing the earth, which they were created to do. We had a wonderful privilege uh, this past week uh, with the engagement that took place. Uh, I had a room that overlooked the Tribune Tower. The whole wall was windows. And here, even with the clock in the Tribune Tower, was the Tribune Tower and the channel that went out to Lake, Lake Michigan. Beautiful, just beautiful. Uh, Joel proposed to her in the next room over, which was a suite, and had even a greater view of this area. And I looked out over that city, and I looked at those buildings, and oh, I mean, I mean, it's, Chicago's about two or three layers deep, I think, isn't it? And I watched the drawbridge right, right in front of the window down there open one time Saturday, and uh, it, it was an amazing thing to see the city. I, I thought to myself, you know, if this city would be destroyed by some kind of a warfare, as some nations have had on their own soil, what, what a job it would have to be to rebuild it. All the supply of the sewers and water and electricity and structures able to maintain the traffic and care for the people in these buildings of such height and endurance. You know, I was, in, I was on the 20th floor, and I didn't feel the building shake or blow in the wind the whole time I was there. Stable. A real testimony to the gifts God had given to mankind to be able to do such things. But that's not the way mankind sees it. The way mankind sees it is that it's of their own thinking, their own hands, that such great cities are able to be built. So one building, she came in the city, blue building has got a shape, you know, different than all. Every, take the architectural, to all the buildings are different, different they were building a city that would bring glory to mankind. Not only that, but reach into the heavens. They have found uh, across the world, that area of the world, ziggurats, they call them, which were great towers in which they would have pictures of deities as you ascended up through the halls into the peak. When you arrived in the peak, it would be a very decorated room created to worship the, the uh, heavens, the stars, the constellations. The sun, the moon. This was, a, this was a defiant 
act on the part of mankind. And it was orchestrated by a man named Nimrod, who we find out about back here uh, in verse 9 of chapter 10. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord of men, not of animals, whereof it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. He put him up to this. You see what happened here? Before the flood, in that time of conscience, anarchy came as man defied God. Now God institutes human government as a restraint and control, and a despot arises. The other extreme, and, and, and leads the people into debauchery and rebellion against God. Well, you know what happened. Verse 2, go to, let us go down. Interesting, let us. And there confound their languages that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth. If you won't obey me, I'll set it up so you do obey me. So if you don't want to spread out, I'll confuse your languages so you can't understand each other. And you'll run away from each other because you don't make sense to each other. And that's exactly what he did. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Then we read chapter 10. Look at verse 5. He divided in their lands everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. Verse 20. After their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Verse 25, Peleg. It was in his day that this happened. In Peleg, for in the days was the earth divided. And then verse 31, these are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues and their lands, after their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations. And these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Notice that statement there. He divided in their lands. All nations have body of land that defines them. Everyone after his tongue, different languages and different nations. After their families. God uh, respected families when he confused his language. I don't know how far he extended that in a family, but he didn't break up nucleus families and force them to tear apart. He respected the family structure he had built. And he forced them into a national system. Because when they went forth into these different areas, they, they bred with one another, they reproduced from one another, basically, and they created the ethnic groups we know today. And uh, in some cases, it didn't work so well. In Job, we read, well, let, let's, let's take a moment to turn to Job. In Job, we read about some very interesting things. I've got that here somewhere. Okay, here it is, chapter 30. Go to Job chapter 30. We'll finish up here in a minute. Job chapter 30. This, this is an amazing text. A lot of people have never seen this text. Job is complaining about being mistreated. And he's complaining here about being mistreated by a group of people that are kind of an inferior, lowly people that aren't civilized. Look here what he says. 
uh, chapter 30, verse 3. For want and famine, they are solitary. He's describing this, these people. Fleeing into wilderness in former time, desolate and waste, who cut up mallows by the bushes and juniper roots for their meat. They were driven forth from among men. They cried after them as after a thief to dwell in the cliffs of the valley, in caves of the earth, and in the rocks. Among the bushes they buried, under the nettles they were gathered together. For they were the children of fools, yea, children of base men. They were viler than the earth. And now am I their song. Does this, does this description sound like anything you've ever heard of? What does it sound like? Some of you know. They were cavemen. Because as those people spread out from that great city and went their different directions, some of them excelled and grew into great civilizations, but some of them degenerated and went into the caves for whatever reason. There was a difference of character. That's where the caveman comes from. He wasn't an individual in the early development, evolutionary development of man. He was a segment of the group that dispersed at uh, Babel that became degenerate and went into the caves and lived and left that evidence for men to find today and used to try to deceive the world that evolution is true. It's here in the Bible. If you study your Bible, see most people who are in that line of thinking don't take time to, say, to study the Bible that carefully that they look at that section there in Job and see there the cavemen that developed so let's look at our uh, dispensation of human government. Okay. I want to look at these applications for a moment. The, this is the origin of ethnic groups. We're one race. We're all one race. When they talk about racial differences, it's really a misnomer because we're all one race. We all came from Noah and from Adam. But there are ethnic differences. The ethnic groups came into existence because as those groups went out, they developed their own culture, their own music, their own way of dress. Sometimes it was something sinful, but other times it was just something different. They used to have ethnic festivals, but because of the moral, not moral, political climate today, I think they become less popular, where people celebrated their heritage, even though they were Americans, and committed to being solid Americans. They celebrated the heritage of the nations from which they came, ethnic groups. Uh, the understanding of human development we just talked about. By the way, there's a book called Empty Cities that shows that great cities in the past devolved as they violated universal moral code. You can see that in the Indians of, of Mexico and South America. God's formation of a nationalistic system, international capitalism, if you look at how things develop. Now, these are not... Do you know the term today, social construct? Social construct is a term that people who want to upset and turn over our culture and society today use to try to neutralize our heritage. In other words, nations didn't come about because God confused languages. Or languages didn't come about because God confused the languages. They are social constructs. They are things that developed socially, that were constructed socially by mankind down through the course of history. And so the identification of who's a man or a woman, and so the idea of governments, 
And so the idea of languages and on and on we go. So all those things are subject to reinterpretation and restudy and realignment. Because you see, they're just social constructs. No. God ordained some of these things. He ordained nations. There's nothing wrong with being patriotic. We have respect for other nations as well. We try to help other nations as well. But God created the nation system. And he said to give honor to whom honor is due. Romans chapter 13. We won't turn there. We don't have time. But you're familiar with it. Tribute to whom tribute to due. Honor to whom honor is due. And uh, it's fine to celebrate ethnic diversity. A passage in Revelation chapter 21 reads like this. This is in the eternal state in heaven, eternity. Chapter 21. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. Nations in eternity. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. There's going to be ethnicity differences in heaven. And uh, it's going to be because of the nations in the Old Testament that were saved, came to the Jews for some, and the tribulation nations, saved people who were saved in the tribulation, various nations. And, and, of course, the sinful things of our different cultures will be laid aside. But the differences, perhaps, in food or dress or different practices will be celebrated. That's something God designed when he created nations. And it continues in the eternal state. Some people have a hard time comprehending that, but I don't see how you can deny it. God gives nations their power. Let every soul be subjected to the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. God ordained the powers of government. Even wicked governments. We'll talk about that in a minute. But remember Acts 5.29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And there comes a point in time when our consciences and relationships with God are in threat, that we stand for God first. There are moral absolutes. Authorities are to follow, for the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. When it says that in the Bible, it obviously means good defined by the Bible and evil defined by the Bible. Governments have a responsibility to uphold absolutes that we talked about a moment ago, even when they don't have revelation as their basis. And praise God, that in our history, we did have a lot of scripture as a basis for the way the government was organized. Every wicked regime advocates certain absolutes. It doesn't matter whether you're a wicked regime or a righteous regime. Drugs, alcohol, and promiscuous sex are destructive to society, and even wicked regimes restrict and control and prosecute such things as that. Capital punishment was instituted. Notice it says in Romans 13:4. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. The sword is a picture of penal government, of penal capacity. Church does not have that. But the government has, both in the sense of internal justice and international uh, defense. The effectiveness of capital punishment has been questioned at various times. But just real briefly, let me say this. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says that, if it's not effective, often it's because it's not instituted quickly enough. 
And Deuteronomy chapter 9 points out that there's a procedural a way to approach these things in law. And, and, and if you follow those things, you'll get results that we're not getting. You can, you can look there and you'll see what it says. But God controls the destiny of mankind. He's going to have summer and winter and seasons as long as he is moving forward in this earth. There's a need for checks and balances. Isaiah 33:22. for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. There are the three branches of government that are needed as checks and balances in the government system. Many today would turn us toward socialism. Socialism denies the sin nature of man. It's based on the idea that if we organize and do things right, we can make everything happen that's good and disregards the fact that when individuals are allowed that kind of power in a society, there arise despots and deaths and murders to accomplish the mutual ownership of property. And uh, historically, any nation that has not well-defined private property has not thrived. It takes away the checks and balances. It takes away the work incentive. Now, if you just look up here a minute, I want you to listen very closely. Listen very closely and see if you recognize this music. Does that sound familiar? Raise your hand, sounds familiar. Now those of you who raise your hand, how many of you know what it is? Imagine. Here's what the words say. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you will join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you will join us and the world will live as one. That is the words to that song. It was written by John Lennon, and released in 1971. If you look at the words of that song and get your newspaper out the last few weeks, you'll find the words are being fulfilled in our society today. You can find that song on YouTube. It was number 30 of the 365 songs of the century. It was uh, John Lennon's best-selling single of his solo career is one of the 100 most performed songs of the 20th century, featured at the 2012 Summer Olympics. Many of you who don't listen to those kind of stations and that kind of music, I'll bet if I went through with those who raise your hand, still, under, still recognize that tune. Why? Because it has proliferated our culture and society. Uh, two years ago, or three, forget which, we went to the uh, graduation of South Bend School Systems and the choir sang this song at the local high school graduation. It says, in fact, on the YouTube channel that it has been viewed since it was posted in December of 2016 184 million times. And when he says here, you, you may say I'm a dreamer, 
but I'm not the only one. Then look out in the streets and you'll see the people throwing bricks and starting fires and ramaging through businesses and destroying streets in our big cities that have joined this cause. But as you look through it, it's, it's failed, it's faltered. It doesn't follow God's plan. God has a plan for nations, a purpose. He has a plan, a purpose for private property. And we could go on and on and on. In closing, I want to, well, not quite closing, but I'm getting there. I'm, I'm going to wear out before you do here in a minute, Bill. I want to read this statement by George Washington in his farewell address. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with a pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. Let us simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which are instruments of investigation in courts of justice? And let us with caution indulge in the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principle. What an amazing statement. God forbid that the history should ever rewrite that statement. But now, I want to ask you a question. Did Noah vote? We're coming up on a great election in our country. What about Noah? So turn back in your Bibles as we close. Some thoughts about Noah and how it might apply to whether we vote or not. Boy, you're thinking, that's got to be far reach. He's got he's to really had to, he had to dig wide for that one. But look at this. This is interesting. Genesis chapter 6, if I can get there. Think about Noah here. Uh, Noah was chosen by God as a man uh, that was unique among his contemporaries. Chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. He's in Hebrews chapter 11, you know, it says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. And then after you look, at, look down to verse 18, God says, But with thee, Noah, will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou, thy sons and thy wives, and thy sons' wives with thee. It's clear from Scripture that his whole family was saved individuals. All that went on the ark. Tremendous, tremendous power of influence he had. Uh, look at verse 22. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. That was a big job he had. And he did it all the way God told him to do it. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord came and said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house with thee into the ark for thee. 
for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. And then Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5 gives us another insight. It says, God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. During that time they were building the ark, he was preaching. He was preaching. Here was a man chosen by God, a just man, recognized in the hall of faith fame, who was a preacher of righteousness, who was known throughout the earth in that wicked, wicked day of the dispensation of conscience. And who became the progenitor of the race to come. Because after the flood, he became the father of all mankind. He was in a tremendous, tremendous position of influence. Turn to chapter 9. Verse 20. And Noah began to be an husbandman. And he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken. And he was uncovered in his tent. He was the progenitor of all the coming race. He was known throughout the earth before the Lord as a just man. And yet, he failed. He failed. Now, I, I, don't, think, I don't think Noah said, hey, Let's go out tonight, get drunk, have a good time. I don't think that's what he did. I don't really know. I don't know if he maybe didn't understand the full, it wasn't alert enough. I mean, he had to know. I mean, he lived a long time. We could go back and look it up, couldn't we? He had to know how uh, fermented grape juice would affect you. He wasn't a kid. But somehow, either through carelessness or discouragement or whatever, I don't know, he got drunk, and a horrible sin came about as a result of it. Here's my point. He was in a position of influence, and he failed to avail himself of it. And as a result, great wickedness came into the world. You know, some people say, we know what God's going to do and know God's plan, so... It doesn't make any difference if I vote. Well, we could say that about everything in our lives. We could rationalize away all kinds of responsibilities. But we have a responsibility to preach the gospel, to do that which is good, to use our influence to promote that which is good and right. And I tell you, just as Noah failed to use his influence here to hold civilization in the right direction, you fail to vote when you have the privilege to do that. You are failing to use the influence that you have been given to bring about good. Even though the alternatives may not be pure, in, either, in, any, in any case, they're all men of failed, sinful men. There is a way that you can do that which is toward the right. Don't miss that opportunity. I was talking to someone the other day that said, well, you know, if one, if one side wins, we as Christians will probably be in better shape than if the other side wins. And if the other side wins, there may be some very dark persecution ahead. But you know what? That may be what God wants, to see revival and to see the church grow. And that may be true. I think that may be true. 
But my, goal, my, my, my commission by God is not to work to bring about evil circumstances so there'll be revival. My job is to proclaim the gospel, to, to look for directions that feasibly look like they're going to be the best opportunities to promote the gospel and teach the word of God and go for it. And if it, if it doesn't end up going that way and it goes the other way, well, that's God's business because he raises up powers and takes them down, isn't it? But I did all I could to promote godliness, to honor those to whom honor is due. And you say, ah, there isn't anybody I voted for I could honor. Well, in the ultimate sense, you're right. But in the sense of recognizing those which are more likely to promote that which we believe to be true in the Bible, to those individuals, we do owe some sort of honor and responsibility. So I encourage you to use your influence in a proper way this week and take the opportunity you have in this country to influence the government toward a direction that is more aligned with biblical principle than perhaps other possibilities. Father in heaven, we think on this political theme today because of the election in our country. But there are much deeper matters here, personal matters. There are people across this country that are being victimized by wrong philosophies. They're singing songs like the one we've mentioned and being enamored caught up in group thinking, uh, peer orientation, do the popularity of a song that happens to have a good, good melody line, but words that scream in your face. Lord, people who are going out in the streets or staying in their homes and are rebelling against you and their thinking, their thoughts are evil, maybe not continually, Lord, all of our thoughts are evil to a point. Enough that we're sinners before a holy God. So I pray, Lord, for our country there might be revival. There might be the saving of souls, the propagation of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring about through this election that which would best promote the teaching of the scripture and promote the gospel of Jesus Christ for souls to be saved in this nation. And I pray, too, in the midst of that, too, that... Whatever your divine providence may be, we put our trust, we know that you are in control. That we might not shirk our responsibility to use our influence for that which is right. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful privilege to preach your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for giving me the strength. To you be the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.